0: folks. Thank you so much for being here with us this morning. If this is your first time here or you're just visiting from out of town and you you returned, welcome back. We're glad that you're here. And if this is indeed your first time, we just encourage you to take out the connection card, which you can find in your bulletin, fill it out, please, and uh, take it out to the first-time guest. Yes, we have a, a gift for you. We're so glad that you're here. And if you haven't noticed, our desire is to make a big deal about Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus was sent by the Father because of the Father's great love for the world. And to whoever would believe in the son, his death and resurrection wouldn't have to have an existence of everlasting separation from God, but could be in relationship, adopted as children into his family. So we preach the gospel at Southbridge, and it's our privilege to do so. We take time each week to worship and praise him, to worship him through our giving of our tithes and offerings, to worship him through our song, to worship him through our fellowship, through our prayer, through the study of God's word, laying our life before him. We long to be a church. Would you pray with me as we open up God's word this morning, Lord, as we come in to your presence and your omnipresence is here, Lord. We long for your the work of your spirit in our lives as we seek to lay ourselves before you, and Lord, we ask that you'd instruct and teach us this morning. We thank you for your word, Lord. And God, we invite you to change our lives. Only you can change a life. Only you can turn a heart, a heart that was cold toward you, only you can make an enemy a friend. And we invite you to do that this morning. Thank you for the privilege of gathering in your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things expectantly. Amen. Well, this weekend marks one for many as the beginning of summer, even though tomorrow for many of us we will spend some moments or even the whole day thinking about remembering those that have given their life so that we may have the freedoms we have. Ultimately, we think of Christ who gave up his life so that we can have freedom forevermore. But we also think of those that have given up their lives for our country and so for some, that's the beginning of summer, summer break. And for summer, many people, that's the beginning of peace for them. What would you count as peace? What is the most peace-filled time you've ever experienced? Maybe you'd use the word tranquility. What is it for you? Do you have it? I can think of family vacations of long ago that were peace-filled and hanging out with grandpa and grandmas. And every time you're with grandma, it's going to be awesome because she always says yes. Right? What about for you? For others, it's just being at the beach or being in the water, going to a pool and just laying at the bottom of the pool and thinking, this is peace. Nothing can touch me here. What is peace for you? For many, peace is simply just the absence of conflict when all is right in your world. For others, it's simply, I have peace when I have all things under control, which is quite interesting that you are so masterful to control all things. What is peace to you? This morning as we open up God's word to Philippians chapter 4, and you can turn there if you'd like. We've been working through this letter, this personal letter from the Apostle Paul to a church that he loves so dearly, and they've been working through various issues, talking about false teachers and looking at unity, and even up to last week, really considering what does it look like to live the cross-centered or Christ-centered life, that Jesus is my one and only thing, that I'd give up all things to know him and to know him more, knowing that we'd never obtain all of that on this side of heaven, but that we'd strive all the more. Not to live as an enemy of the cross, then, who's... Mind is on earthly things and selfish desires and living for self as the king or queen of their life, but simply to put on Christ and to view all of life through the focus of I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection. That's what we've been studying up to this point. And this morning, our text is actually quite famous. You might have it hidden in your heart already, talking about worry, anxiety, peace. It's just an interesting flow of thought as someone is writing this pleading love letter. The author is writing from prison. He's in prison waiting a trial to see if this Jesus stuff is legit. Nero, the emperor, is supposed to make this decision. Is this just a sect of Judaism or is it something new? And Paul is waiting patiently and excitingly to have the opportunity to make Jesus known. He's writing from prison and he's going to be writing about peace. So let's look at Philippians chapter 4. We'll start in verse 1. Interesting thing is, as you're writing from prison, you're writing eventually here about peace Jesus is true, and he says that in this life you will have trouble. So I've been wondering, is it possible to have peace in the midst of bad circumstances? Or is peace simply the absence of conflict, or when all is right in your world? I think we get some insights this morning. Let's look at verse 1. I'll read the whole context for us this morning, the whole passage this morning, then we'll go verse to verse. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown... That is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Talking about living as those that are citizens of heaven rather than enemies of the cross. I plead with Yodia, and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended by my side or at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and I say it again, rejoice Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. If you're one who is outlined, inclined, you can see here this flow of thought. There's a conflict, Then there's a call of prayer. Then there's this talk about the presence of peace. Look back at verse one. We'll look at verses one through three to start. I plead with, or verse one, therefore my brothers, You whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, this is the church that he's for. That is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. We start off this really popular section, and maybe this is not the part that's been hidden in your heart, but we start off the scriptures here with a Disagreement. There's a fraction here. There's a breaking in the church. What would it be like for you if you were part of a church and the pastor called you out in a letter in front of all people? Not very popular to do in 2015, I'd say. You could probably see that church become a small church. To be called out. I mean, I don't like getting in trouble. I'd hate it. I'd be embarrassed of myself. How about you? So a letter is being written from prison. Of all the things that could be in Paul's mind, this is one of the things in his mind. These two women were prominent believers that worked with Paul in the ministry of the gospel and apparently they were opposing one another and scholars have debated which, what the problem really is. They could be two leaders in two different home churches that represent the overall church in Philippi. We don't know. And I wondered why would Paul then address such personal issues in a public way? And the answer has to be that a private thing became a public thing. He had To write about it. What was divided, the church, should be unified, the church. Doing some introspection here. When was the last time you had a falling out with someone that it became public knowledge and sides were taken? Maybe you're experiencing that right now. Maybe a more general question. Have you ever been a part of a church before that divided or split over an issue? Over personal things that became public things? Things that were filled then with with anger and bitterness, rage, malice, slander? How about a show of hands? Has anyone ever experienced that before, that you were part of a church that divided? Has anyone experienced that? Praise God, only a few. So it's quite common. We know that there's 30,000 denominations in Christendom. So Methodist, Presbyterian, Baptist, Assemblies of God, Church of Nazarene, Free Will Baptist, each one of those are denominations. Church of Christ, Church of Christ in America, Presbyterian USA, Anglican, Episcopal. We can keep going, right? So we may ask, well, what happened there? Well, we know that for most of those stories, most of those instances where fractions happened and people that were once in great community and love one another divided, we know that almost all of them believe that Jesus died and rose again, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. So every disagreement they had was lesser than that thing. Two denominations started simply because they had a dispute over whether the furniture in the church should have legs or not. You laugh at them, they would be really angry with you. How dare you say that this communion table shouldn't have legs? I can't be in your presence. Now, it's easy to laugh at because that's not your thing. So what if we touch on your thing? So Paul is writing to a church that he loves dearly that's starting to see in the infancy of this church some division already. People that worked with him, side by side with him, that would contend for the gospel, saying that Jesus died and rose again, so that any who would believe in him would have a relationship with the living God. He's writing to them. So Paul encourages these two to, did you see it, to, to agree with each other. Your translation might say to, to have the same mind. Or another translation says to have harmony. See, before we get to the famous section about peace, we actually have an illustration of conflict. And Paul is urging them to agree. How can you agree when you disagree? See, the integrity of a local church comes as a result of mutual love and peace between believers. This is why we pray for unity. Even if there's not division, we pray in advance and continually for unity. Unity in the church, same for Southbridge. The Lord has been gracious to us that he's kept us from much infighting than I know of. But we pray in advance for unity. This unity within the church can then destroy the integrity of its testimony, can it? What do you think division amongst Christians communicates to an unbelieving world? Why would they want what we've got when what we've got doesn't look that great? I mean, they can stay with their own families and have division. They can just go to a Christmas party. They can go to Thanksgiving dinner and have such a thing. Why would they want to experience that every Sunday? So Paul addresses it. He has to address it. You know, it's possible that the dispute between these two ladies is what caused them to even write in Philippians chapter 2 talking about unity, which we looked at already. And Paul tells these two then to, to agree. And the next phrase is to agree in the Lord. I plead with you to agree with each other in the Lord. He's saying then, make peace because of your bond of Christ. One Lord, one faith, one hope, one baptism. Certainly, if we've got this in common and we're actually stuck together for all time, <laughs> I will see you, even if you're going to have your own house church happening, Syntyky. I will see you. Yeah, I'll see you, Yodia, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So what Paul is contending is, because you are in the Lord, agree with one another in the Lord. Find a way to do it because you can start living the kingdom life now. (laughs) Because of what you have in common, overcome that which you've allowed to divide you. It reminds me of a passage that he wrote to another church, Colossians chapter 3, um, verse 12 through 15. He just encourages over and over again each of these churches to be unified. And this is Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. And be thankful, loved ones. Living the cross-centered life, as our lead pastor, Scott Lear, so well led us to consider last week, and hopefully this week you saw much victory. Living the cross-centered life influences then how you engage relationships, doesn't it? How you perceive Christ, how you think of Christ throughout the week should dictate then how you engage the people around you. So Paul is welcoming those that have walked with him and ministered alongside him to consider the gospel and in light of their acceptance of the gospel of Jesus Christ that they might find a way to agree with one another. The cross in their life, it pleads for believers to to find a way to live at peace with one another, but church is messy, isn't it? Why is it messy? Because you're here, not me. Paul knows this and addresses issues And relationship training to almost every church he helped plant. Because it's people. And we need help, and we're going to need help. And so then he pleads with others to help these two. Look at verse 3 again. Do you have it? Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. In verse 3, Paul asks for the aid of another, this yoke fellow, loyal yoke fellow. We don't know who this is. Scholars debate who it is. It could be Timothy, who we've learned about already and was a great companion, a disciple of Paul. It could be Epaphroditus, who we looked at already, who was sent by that church and will be getting sent back. Some people believe that that word yoke fellow, the Greek word for that word, is just simply a name, an elder in that church. We don't know. We'd be guessing. It doesn't matter because what we do know for sure is that he's saying, would others please help These ladies. The point is, he's asking someone to assist these women in their dispute, bringing them back to fellowship with one another. And sometimes we need other people to help us, don't we? Mediation. Especially when we're blinded by hurt, anger, and pride. We can't see straight. However, isn't it true that most times when we bring other people in, it's so that they'll be on our side, on our team, to get the placating advice we want? You know what? You need to look out for yourself. That person doesn't get it. You're right, they're wrong. Isn't that what we do when we bring other people in on it? Some, from time to time? And what happens there is just perpetuating the division. But here, Paul is asking others to participate and to give aid with real peacemaking in mind. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. He's got Jesus in mind as he's asking other people that love the Lord, that love these people, to come alongside them to help them to find a, a way to agree in the Lord. And did you catch something else that Paul just kind of added on there in his stream of consciousness? He talks about the book of life. He talks about Clement and others that served. And he's just trying to really rally them to unity on the fact that they are in Christ. He talks about this, the book of life. And since we're in God's family, our names are in his book of life, which is, a, for those that are new to that understanding, that idea, it's, it's the registry of all who God brings into his family. Psalm 68 mentions it. Luke chapter 10, Revelation 3, 13, 17, 20, and 21. He's bringing it up so that they feel compelled that they can find a way on this side of heaven to overcome that which has divided them. It's like he's saying this, let's find a way to have peace with one another now, not just in the kingdom to come. And then we see the flow right into the next thought that this reminder of our place in his kingdom and with our disputes with one another in mind of that now, it should move us to rejoice. Rejoice because we're in, in his family By his grace, through the faith that he granted, he receives the praise and glory. We are to rejoice, and that's exactly what Paul exhorts next, and it's the theme of the whole letter. Pastor Scott has led us through this over and over again. We see about joy, 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 rejoice. How can he write that when he is from prison? Let's look at the next verse, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord. What's the next word? Say it, please, loved ones. How is that possible? I will say it again, rejoice. So it's not a suggestion. The psalmist says the same, commands us to rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near, verse five says. Interesting stream of thought then here, isn't it? People problems to rejoicing, to an exhortation of gentleness, then to a reminder of the Lord's presence. He's just flowing. Paul says to rejoice in the Lord always. How can Paul then Say that, suggest that, after just describing to folks that are in dispute. How can can we rejoice when there's conflict? How can we rejoice when it seems like life is anti-peace and there's trouble and sickness and there's death and death of our loved ones? How could we rejoice? The scriptures give us the answer. Did you catch it? The scripture says to rejoice in the Lord. How can Paul suggest to rejoice? Because we rejoice in the Lord, not in the circumstance. See, happiness is related to happenstance, things that happen to us. And sometimes we're happy and sometimes we aren't. Isn't that right? My least favorite thing to do is to take my car to the car shop because inevitably it costs $1,000. Every time. Oil change, $1,000. Okay, because they know I'm an idiot. Here's the money. How much monies can this help my car with? How do I rejoice in that circumstance? I cannot. So, Paul is an anti reality, but he's in the ultimate reality of saying, Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord, not in the circumstance. To rejoice in the Lord is to place our focus on Him, to be cross centered, Christ centered, as we learned last week. Paul says to rejoice and to rejoice always. And that would mean then not only when things are good or that you have them under control, which is a myth, of course. This is an exhortation then to be Christ-centered. You know something that gets in the way of rejoicing in the Lord? Thinking about how right you are and how wrong someone else is. Therefore, it fits perfect with the line of thought. He's still encouraging those two ladies. You Can't rejoice in the Lord in all, all things when you think about how wrong that person is and how right you are. And if they'd only get it, if they would just listen... Can't do it. So Paul then charges his readers, perfect flow of thought, then after rejoicing in the Lord, he urges and charges his readers to be a people known for gentleness. Did you see that? Let your gentleness be evident to all. Gentleness is forbearance or an attitude that doesn't retaliate. Perfect line of thought here. It can refer to mercy toward others and their faults and failures. It's graciousness with humility. It's being a bit like Jesus, isn't it? It's an expression of love. It's a choice to yield to their best interest, to be gentle with others. The same kind that was extended to us from God through Christ. So this is a perfect perfect command, a perfect charge or exhortation to those that are in a dispute, isn't it? Are you in one right now? Where would, how would gentleness help in this situa- situation? Gentleness comes as a result of your life being filled up with God's Spirit, which comes by being tight with Him and abiding in Christ and getting to know Him, pressing into Him, and the Lord fills you up with His character. It's a characteristic of Him. Impossible to have it without Him. We can have appeasing, which is saying sorry for things you don't really believe. That's fake Peace. Or the walk away style, where you still constantly think about how wrong they are. That's fake peace. Escapism, control, fake peace. Gentleness can be used as a peace agent, but you cannot drum it up yourself. It comes from being close to Jesus, being cross-centered. The cross-centered life influences how we engage those around us, yes? Especially other believers, and then Paul says, may it be evident to all those around you. Just as contention then between believers can be made across, known across city miles. Have you ever known friends that were believers that were in dispute? We live in North Carolina. I have friends or people that I know that live in Michigan. That it's known that they're in dispute. Texas, known and in dispute. So just like that can be known, and as Paul knows as he's writing from his prison about such things he's not there with them but it's traveled the legacy and testimony has traveled he's now encouraging them to have a legacy a testimony of being cross-focused christ-focused unto gentleness that's why he says let it be evident to all jesus said to his disciples do you know this scripture that they meaning other people in this world will know you're my disciples if what if you love one another See, when you love like this or you're gentle like this, it creates a tension within other people whereby they ask you, how did you forgive that person? How can you be so cool in response to them? How can you give grace and grace them? How can you forgive them over and over and over again? And the answer back is, oh, because of Jesus. I stepped forward in my inability and he came through in my obedience step and he gave me the ability to be gentle in that moment. The wait staff at the restaurant messes up your order again, and you can't believe it. Is it possible that they've had a bad day? What would it be like to be gentle? What do you think gentleness communicates to an unbelieving world? Paul is speaking wisdom here by the Holy Spirit to believers and how they treat believers. Jesus says. The world will know that you're my disciples if you love one another, and gentleness is a version of that love. When Paul says in verse 5 that the Lord is near, so let your gentleness be made evident to all, hey, the Lord is near. Some scholars take it to mean that he is present by his omnipresence, as an accountability and comfort. And others say that it's about his imminent return, a reverence to Christ's return. So hold on to holiness, some suggest he's saying. I would say um, both are good. However, I believe it's about God's presence rather than his return because the end of our text says that the God of peace will be with you. But I might be wrong. Both are good. True belief in the fact that Jesus is returning can bring our behaviors and relationships into better focus, can't they? As well as then as how we perceive the weight of our circumstances. Let's put them in the right place. That this dispute with this other friend is way less than the fact that the father is sending his son again soon at the appointed time. Find a way to arrange it, to work out together, to find a way to be gentle toward another and love one another as you've been loved by Christ. The Lord is with you and the Lord is returning. Perfect stream of thought. And then he continues, look at verse 6. Do you have this one hidden in your heart? Now, here's, here's the infamous passage. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. See, a life that is cross-centered, one that is mindful of Christ, of his death for our sake, his resurrection, and his imminent return is a life that will see worry and anxiety, stress from uncertainty about circumstances and the future dissipate by God's peace. And the things of life, the things of world, will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. When I'm focused on Christ, When you're focused on Christ, you're not focused on the circumstances. You cannot conjure up peace yourself. It is uh, evidence of God's spirit in your life. But the part that you play has to do with in here. Fret and worry indicate a lack of trust in God. In his wisdom, his sovereignty, that his hands are around on each side of the scenario that the days of each person have been dictated and numbered by him and that he is around it, that he's capable. Fred and Worry indicated a lack of trust in his power. Yet faith and trust is what pleases him, the book of Hebrews tells us. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So, our circumstantial anxiety, and that's what we're talking about today when we see the word anxiety, is how we respond to circumstances. I understand the notion and the belief that there is anxiety that is chemistry, chemical anxiety, but what we see in the scriptures here is the way that we perceive or think, fret, obsess over circumstances is antitrust in the Lord. It's antitrust in his nearness. The Lord is near, the author writes. It's antitrust in his power, and his plan, his control, his return. The Greek word translated anxious means to be pulled in different directions. It's our hopes versus our fears. Now you think about your life. Think about your hopes versus your fears. The hopes that you have for your children or loved ones. Chiefly, I'm sure that they would know Christ, that they would walk in wisdom and walk by the Spirit and fold the Spirit. Think about your fears versus your hopes, your financial fears versus your hopes, your career financial fears versus hopes, how today will go for you. The old English root word from which we get our word worry, you may know this already, means to strangle. Isn't that a perfect word? Would it be fair to say then then that worry is not cross-centered thinking but self-centered thinking? Worry is the enemy of peace. Worry strangles peace. Worry is a thinking problem, not a circumstance problem. Do you, want, do you want to know how I know that? Because I'm really good at it. And I can worry about things when I have nothing to worry about, worrying about what I should be worrying about, worrying about what might be, do you have any ability in that? It's not a supernatural ability. It's of this earth, of this world. Worry is a thinking problem. Paul says, do not be anxious about, what does he say? Anything. What's wrong with him? It reminds me of Jesus teaching against worry in Matthew chapter 6, uh, verses 25 through 34. Do not worry about what you're going to wear or what you're going to eat. The Lord knows, our Father knows that you need them. And I think to myself, I, that's exactly what I worry about. And more. I wonder if I filled my mind and my life and my heart with more worries than the people that Jesus was speaking to in Matthew chapter 6 could ever dream of. Retirement, do you think they worried about retirement? I doubt it worrying about the next meal, potentially, worrying about what to wear so that they wouldn't have to walk around with nothing on. And yet I give myself permission to violate that teaching over and over again because we know that the real naughty sins in church are the real naughty ones, sexual sin and murder and these things, but worry, that's okay, everyone does it. (laughs) Placating advice. And yet Jesus and Paul command, exhort us not to worry, but they just giving that tip alone wouldn't be helpful, would it? If they just said, hey, don't worry, nice tip. My wife has a strong constitution and she doesn't get bothered by people like I do. She says, don't let them worry bother you. Oh, good tip, I'll try that. I never thought, I didn't know why I didn't think about that. (laughs) Hey, I'm not worrying anymore. So anti-worry is not carefree living, okay? Because the scriptures are full of wisdom and steps to take for wisdom. It's not not caring, apathy Apathy is not godliness, okay? But we've been commanded not to to be anxious, not to worry. So let me tell you my testimony, a little bit of it. I've been a professional worrier since I can remember. And yet no one's paid me, but I pay myself. And I think that if I can think through the scenario and think through the possibilities, that I might just be able to save myself through any circumstance. I can think back to going to school the first time, every time a new school year would begin. What would happen at recess? Whose team would I be on? How would I do in the grade? What would my parents think about that grade? Going to middle school, changing to a new school in sixth grade, what would that be like for me? Making the basketball team, what would people think about my sports goggles that I was wearing? I better not wear them anymore. How will I do in the game? What will people think of my performance? Going up to driver's ed and how I had a driver's training instructor that looked like um, Hulk Hogan, but he was a fat version of it, and how would I please him? Making sure that I showed up on time and making sure I read my Bible every day and journal every day and went on all the mission trips. Making sure that I would do all it took to make my youth pastor happy and my friends happy and not want to disappoint my parents. And I put beliefs on me that they never put on me. Transitioning to college and not knowing what I was doing there and believing the false beliefs of myself that I'm too dumb to be here. So I need to work hard or think hard or be a good boy. Transitioning to student ministry and being put in position as an elder at a new church when I was 24 years old confronting men for beating their wives or cheating on their wives or other men flirting with their wives when I was in that position I never should have been in. Worry how to say it and what to say. Did they say this, then I'll say that. Then transitioning to a larger church and student ministry in Greenville, South Carolina, one of several pastors at a large church. And how will I work here? And how will I bless students here? And what is my part in it? Lord, what will you do about us financially? And then worrying about money. And now we have babies coming in and now we graduate to five babies just after moving here nine years ago, July, and thinking about how can we be a church planner? We've never been before. We didn't do the training before. We'd raise money like to be like a missionary here before. What am I gonna do? It's all the time. Sitting down with people who have questions about their sexual orientation and how God can accept them. And what are we going to do? since Southbridge has such a stance because we stand on God's word and God's word is true. If I say this, then they think that. If I say this, I do not go anywhere else. What am I going to do? I'm responsible for how they're going to respond. Southbridge has a thousand people that probably call their church. I need to make sure that I know every one of them and care for every one of them. Because if they say Southbridge doesn't care, then, that, then that's my fault. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. If this thinking problem is not adjusted. So what do people do that are like this? Maybe you relate. You know what they do? They escape or control. I will make everything happen. So by their power and might, they try to manipulate and make their thing happen. The thing that, even if it's a noble thing. Or they escape. So drugs, alcohol, pornography, food. No one talks about food, so I can do that one. Because pastors can eat a lot of food and no one says anything about it. Except for their wife, then you criticize them for criticizing you. So drive through McDonald's and order one of everything. Then the accuser comes and says, see, you're a loser, you're an idiot, look how fat you are, and then you have to worry about that. Anyone relate? I saw a website this morning, looking over, I was looking over this stuff, and then I was uh, online at the same time, and I saw this website called Happify, and you take a test on yourself, and they're gonna give you these tools to use to make yourself happy. Some are playing games, that's escapism. One was how to control scenarios and relationships that are causing trouble. That's manipulation usually. Hmm? I'm not into, I don't want happiness. I want peace and I want joy, which is over and above and through circumstances. You? Then you've got to have Christ. And that's what Paul is pointing his readers to. It's not enough, though, for us, is it, that Jesus of all just say, Hey, quit worrying. Oh, yeah, I'll try that. So what should we do? Paul tells us, look at verse 6. With all this in mind now about anxiety, look at verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, 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 but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present yourself, your quest to God. So what can we do? What should we do in the face of that which calls us to be anxious or worry? The scriptures tell us to pray. Paul says, don't worry about anything. And he says, Don't worry about anything and pray about everything. Go to him. Trust him. Prayer is a form of trust if you're really praying to him. Don't just pray in crisis, but in everything. By prayer, which is the general word for prayer. Through petition, that means um, asking for help. And why should we ask God for help? Many people wonder. They look around at the tragedies and wonder, well, is God really active? You have to make a choice in what you're going to trust in. Your experience or what God's word says about himself. The reason why we should... Cast our cares for us because he cares for us. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 tells us this. A person who experienced much trouble, Peter, writes to his, his readers, cast all your anxiety on him. Your translation may say cares. Why? Because he, that is the Lord, cares for you. Can you imagine the creator of all that is, the sustainer of all this, holding all things in their place, cares about you? Incredible. He cared so much for you, in fact, that even before you were here, he sent his son so that you may have freedom, for freedom's sake, for all who will place their faith and trust and confidence in him by God's grace. Paul just encourages these people so easily with prayer. Just pray. And you may think to yourself, well, that doesn't help me. Well, I don't know what your prayer life is like. I don't know, I don't know what you're expecting. I don't know what you're, what you're asking the Lord. I don't know what it's like for me. Paul says to to pray with thanksgiving. And this is an attitude of humility and gratitude for even being allowed to come before the Lord. So much can be said about prayer. We have people that are prayer warriors within our body. Lots of books written about prayer and how-tos and the seven steps and the five keys. To make it simple, prayer is an intentional pause. Speaking, trusting, listening to the Lord. Now, we usually pray. All people pray. Did you know that? We just don't always pray to the Lord. We usually pray to our friends. Or we pray to ourselves and our mind, which is a control technique trying to fantasize about all the scenarios that could be then trying to figure out the way through it yourself in your limited, finite, little, small, nothing self. Prayer to the Lord is a function of trust. For some, even Christians, we are quick to trust others and ourselves first so i was wondering this week why does god have to even command us to pray <laughs> he doesn't need it it's not like he's a fairy that if we stop praying he dies like clapping to revive him he he, he why does he have to command us to come to him when he knows and has power and cares Because we're quick to go to others that don't have such, and we're quick to go to ourselves, and we pray to ourselves, we pray to our friends. He is the King that allows us to come confidently before Him. Cross centered people pray. That's a truth. Jesus prayed, and often. If He did, how much more should we? Are you a person of prayer? I bet if you are, you don't see anxiety the same way that people that don't have prayer have it. Could Southbridge be labeled as a praying people, I wonder? I wonder if our small groups are a praying people. Cross-centered people are a praying people. Paul commands us, commands prayer, and then with this prayer, with this command, comes a promise. Did you catch it? Look at verse 7 again. As we walk verse to verse here, Six talks about prayer and the kinds of prayers and making a request unto God in verse seven and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. A calm. The peace of God is promised to the believer who, was, who has a thankful attitude based on unwavering confidence that God is able and willing to do what is best for his children. My children make requests of me all the time A couple of weekends ago, Amanda was out on, uh, she was just gone for Friday and Saturday, and so I had the privilege of being with the um, Furious Five. And I can tell you that it's perpetual requests. They come to me. They ask for things. And it's usually related to snacks. We've said this before at Southbridge. I mean, Scott and I both have shared that it's just perpetual asking for snacks. It's incredible. And they beat me down every time. It usually ends up with this. Whatever, cavities are cool. Whatever. (laughs) The Lord never responds with whatever. He says yes or no, knowing what is best. And sometimes we don't know what is best. We think it would be best to not have this job issue, to have the issue with the boss, or that our children wouldn't be so wayward. We know of what is best. Then we bring those appeals and those concerns before the Lord. The Lord's response is best, and you can trust in Him. And the peace of God will well up as you trust In Him. The peace of God is promised to every believer who has a thankful attitude based on unwavering confidence that God is able and willing to do what is best for His children. The promise and a prayerfulness is peace. Write it down and consider it. Moreover, pray. The antidote to anxiety, to circumstantial anxiety and worry is the peace of God, which wells up in us by God's Spirit. How can this peace be defined? Simply as the absence of problems or trouble? No. God's peace is an inner calm that results from trust and confidence in one's relationship with God through Jesus. Just simply, your confidence in Christ dictates the measure of peace in your life. Count on it. He is faithful. So it comes upon you, when it comes upon you, that anxiety, that worry about a circumstance or the future, something you don't know, something that you can't control or escape from, you remember that you have Christ if you're a Christian. You remember that you have Christ and that he's taking care of your greatest need. And everything other than that is lesser than that. Important, but lesser than that. That's what it means to be cross-centered in light of anxiety, worry as it relates to peace. Okay, I want that. I want that peace. I I want God's peace in my life. How? Tell me what to do. Okay, I'll start praying more. What can I do better to partner with God's spirit whereby he cultivates his character of peace in my life? Paul tells us, essentially, through prayer, to trust in the truth, to trust in the Lord. Prayer is a trust step. To pray sincerely is to trust. In this way, verse 7 may sound a lot like a verse of some scripture that you already know. Do you know this one? Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Think about this now in light of what Paul wrote. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. What is my understanding? How I view things? My angle, my perception? As much intellect as I have? The way that we partner with God's Spirit, whereby He cultivates peace, is trusting the truth, consciously making a decision to tell the truth to the circumstance. To tell the truth to how I feel. How do you feel? I feel anxious. Why? Because these people don't get it. The truth is that the Lord loves them. And if you tell the truth and you love them, then you've done what you're supposed to do. And you're going to heaven, you're in the kingdom. God's character of peace overwhelms us when we trust in the truth, leaning on him, his understanding. Our Savior calls himself the truth and speaks truth so that you can rest assured to trust in the Lord with all your heart. Jesus is truth. The Father sends in truth the truth who welcomes us to the truth. And invites us to trust in him. And as we do that, we walk with peace. Here's what the connection is between Jesus and peace, just for a little bit extra here. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, Christ afforded us peace. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14, Paul writes that for he that is Christ himself is our peace. John chapter 14 verse 27, Jesus says of himself, peace I leave you, my peace I give you. So when you're facing anxiety and you're facing worry about circumstances, things that you can't control and you've tried all you can to think through all the possible scenarios, you go to the Lord in prayer and you trust in the truth of Christ himself. I've got Christ. Wouldn't that be being cross-centered. It's a gift to us. What does the statement mean that God, that his, God's peace, that his peace transcends all understanding? When we're not supposed to lean on our understanding, but now we're given a peace that doesn't fit our understanding? How can you explain something you don't understand? It's troubling. Like me trying to teach you how to do a Rubik's Cube. I don't know. It means God's peace transcends human intellect analysis and insight okay so it's unbelievable in that you should have peace in light of the circumstance that you're in that's what makes it an, a peace that transcends understanding you should be freaking out paul you're in prison people of philippi you should be really distressed because persecution is upon you or coming your way and yet these people have peace wow Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. It's only by going to God through Christ that we can have this peace. It's unbelievable peace. So peace is not the absence of conflict. That's a bad definition. The absence of trouble. Peace is found in the presence of the Lord when you come to him in prayer and then you apply truth as you walk and navigate through your life it's okay I've got Jesus it's okay God is over that I trust in him I brought my cares and concerns to him it's okay it's okay I can trust him I can trust him he's trustworthy he's never lied Paul says that the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds (laughs) which is precisely where worry and anxiety are rooted isn't it? wonderful writing. This word guard is a military term. It means to keep watch over. It reminds me of when we brought our first little one home 11 years ago. Mia Elizabeth. We put her in a little um, bassinet next to us and I had to watch her breathing. Yep, still, still doing it. It was a combination of now being a new parent and being a pro at worrying. Put my hand by her mouth to see if she's breathing. Put my hand on her back to see if it raises. What Are we doing it right? Are we doing it okay? They actually sent her home with us. <laughs> how much better is the Lord at his peace standing at guard of your heart and your mind? Or we can say, I'm not interested in that. I'll sort through it. It's available to you. As you pray, trust in the Lord, trust in the truth. The peace of God protects from worry, anxiety, fear, distress over circumstances, not from circumstances. That's bad teaching. It'd be a bad teaching if someone said, if you trust in God, bad things won't happen. Jesus promises, in this life you'll have trouble, but but take heart, I've overcome the world. Meaning, you've got me. When we live the cross-centered life, we readily come to God with every kind of prayer. We experience his peace in our minds and our souls, and we we will be free then. He frees us from anxiety in a way that defies mere rational explanation. It surpasses all understanding. This is why someone can have peace while they're going through cancer treatment. This is why someone can have peace while they're in the middle of terrible conflict. This is why someone can have peace when they're going through trouble, when they've been abandoned, when people have ridiculed them. Paul finishes this section of the letter with more exhortation, and we have to hurry. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me and seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. God's peace, then it just continues the thought. God's peace with those that think and act upon what is true. How we think matters, as does what we think about, worrying about circumstances or obsessing over we cannot control the future. Disastrous possibilities starts in the mind. So Paul encourages his readers as it relates to their lives to think upon all that Jesus is true, noble, lovely. Makes sense now in the flow of thought, starting all the way back with two ladies that are having a fight. pleading with them to know peace, to live in peace. Paul encourages his readers as it relates to their lives to think upon all that Jesus is. Jesus says, I am the truth. Which is in contrast to what Paul wrote a little bit earlier ago about enemies being thinking about earthly things only. Previous chapter says that. Enemies think about earthly things. Trusting in the truth is our part whereby we partner with the Lord, seeing his spirit bring about peace. It reminds me of the scripture in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3, considering how we think in peace. You will keep him, you, Lord, will keep him in perfect peace. Him whose mind is steadfast, because what? He trusts in you. Old Testament, New Testament, same, same God. We are to fill our minds with truth, what is right, just, noble, worthy of respect, pure, morally clean, lovely, admirable, positive, and constructive. It's hard to do, isn't it? all these are considered excellent or praiseworthy so rather than conforming to the patternless world like enemies of the cross in how we think we need a transformation by the renewing of our minds filling our minds with what's true saying what is true to how we think and feel that comes by trusting in the truth and seeing that truth lived out so that's why paul then says what you've heard and seen now live it out put right thinking into right living follow the truth proclaimed and the truth lived And in the course of time, outward actions reflect what have been our inward thoughts. Isn't that true every time? Isaiah chapter 32 verse 17 says, The work of righteousness, so now the to-doing, the work of righteousness will be peace. By prayer and right thinking and living up the truth, you will experience more of God's peace. Do you want that? Then take it. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you. We recognize that you are the Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your great love and mercy toward us and extended us through Christ. Thank you for this word. Thank you for the challenges we've been receiving as we gather together weekly, considering you being our one thing, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for sending him. Lord, help us to throw, so, throw off the things that so easily entangle us and let us run the race that you've marked up for us. Let's, Lord, help us to race hard toward the prize that you've set before us. We long to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and to walk in that power that we'd be a people of power, not unto our own glory, but for your own. And Lord, I pray for us as a church family that we'd be a people of peace, that you'd help us to find a way to agree with one another and that we'd be a, a people that are gentle toward one another. And I pray, God, that we'd be, we'd be a prayerful people. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to think well and to think rightly that we would think of the truth and that truth would set us free and that we'd be a people of freedom and a people of peace and that we'd live out what is true for the sake of others and for your glory alone. So Lord, we give this week to you and expectantly do so in Jesus' name, amen.